This program is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those wishing to go deeper into classic Christianity, with resources available in a connected age, online at RestoringTheCore.com. This is the Lens of Glory, Class Session 9. Welcome to the Lens of Glory, a program dedicated to demonstrating that the Bible can be read through the lens of the glory of God. I'm Walter Hampel. This and all of the programs in this series of podcasts were recorded during Sunday School at Troy Christian Chapel in Troy, Michigan, the United States of America. The purpose of this class is to demonstrate the linkage between Jesus Christ and the glory of God as found in the Bible. Since the Bible shows us that it is written about and centers on Christ, the Bible also can be read with a viewpoint or lens where we see that the glory of God is a dominating theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. A Christ-saturated Bible must also be a Bible which is filled with the glory of God. The following is the audio for this class session. Our Sovereign Lord, we thank you on this first Sunday in February for your presence among us that we can live and move and have our being in your presence. I pray you guide our class discussion, may you be glorified by it, and may we see your glory in your word. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, uh, let's see. What I wanted to do, I may, I think I mentioned this the very first class session we did back in December, that I was looking to do the audio of this class as a podcast. Well, we've got the first one up. Uh, the, the edits should work. Um, how do I put it? I have to do a little bit more intense editing on session two because of some embedded audio we did. You might remember we had some Rick Warren material. Uh, if I just pick up the echo of what's going on in class, it's going to sound less than good. Let's put it that way. Um, however, this, let me show you quickly what's going on here with that. Oh, you have a few ways of accessing this if you wish. One of the ways is by going actually onto the internet. I have a website I've set up called the Lens of, or excuse me, it's called lensofglory.blogspot.com. And if you want, you could just even listen from there. There's a little, if you see where this little arrow thing, this little hand with the fingers, the one finger, but hopefully the right finger, not okay. the other one. Uh, you click on that. This program is a production of a And you'll actually bring up. You might hear why Julie did the uh, intro and extra for the voice. No, no, that's not my son fiddling. I wish it were. Uh, I managed to get some uh, audio of a uh, recording of a man named Felix Buxtehuda. Uh, it's from the 17th century, and I just, it's kind of it's a little bit more obscure, but I kind of like it. So. Did they record it back then? Uh, <laughs> very rare to find them nowadays. Very, very rare to find them. You've got to dig to try to find one of those things. Anyway, so you've got that, but you can also, if you go to the iTunes store, sorry, sorry, what you do is go to the iTunes store, okay, I'm not responsible for the content Amazon's putting through here right now. Okay, 
upper right hand corner, if you, type in, if you type in Lens of Glory and then do a search, it will take you away from the page you've been booing. <laughs> and actually, believe it or not, Calvary Chapel has an episode, an episode a, a session of something they call the Lens of God's Glory. I had no idea about this until I actually was doing the posting of this. But, uh, yeah, but you, actually, if you, if you go to Lens of Glory, click on that, and then you'll see that. You can play it from there, and it's free. Uh, you can also subscribe to it if you wish. And whenever there's updates that will happen, and there will be a few updates that happen this week, uh, I'm going to try to catch up to all of our my other podcast I call episodes, sorry. Uh, the other sessions for this class, I'm going to try to hopefully have everything in place by the end of next week. So there will be a few out there this week, a few out there next week. So these are your uploads? Yeah, these are mine. you got to go back and give yourself some ratings at um, <laughs> I will allow someone else to give me praise and not praise myself. Something with, something with scriptural principle behind that. But anyway, so The Lens of Glory is up with at least the first episode. Uh, session, session, session. Uh, the first class, first class session and also is available on lensofglory.blogspot.com. So... You're going to be on the internet. You're already on the internet. Anyway, <laughs> but just to let you know that. Um, something else I came across, actually I purchased this about a year ago. Let's, uh, let's, let me go back here. I'm, I'm trying to bring things back to where they need to be and slideshow from the beginning. Okay, uh, there is a devotional I purchased called Glorifying God year-long collection of classic devotional writings by Thomas Watson, who is a 17th century English minister. Uh, it's actually compiled by a uh, woman named Patty M. Hummel, and it's a reading concerning the glory of God, which actually takes a brief passage of scripture and works in sermons and books, or texts from sermons and books that Edwards, Edwards sorry, Watson did back in the uh, 1600s. Uh, one of them in particular, I thought, really kind of ties in well what we're going to be dealing with today. So if I may, if I may read this, I'm actually going to be doing a little bit of extracurricular reading today. So uh, bear with me, if you will. This is from uh, February 1st. How did I kick this in? Sorry, that wasn't intended. I have to end that. Uh, is that me? Normally, normally I'd say, why are you interrupting the class? In this case, I'd say, thank you for downloading. <laughs> Excellent. I'm trying to read it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good. No, because there, there are times when I've had stuff that, that's triggered before. It's like, I've time-bombed myself. Anyway, uh, from February 1st, glorifying God, passage is from Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, Will a man rob God, yet ye have robbed me? They rob God who take the glory due to God for themselves. They ascribe their wealth to their own wisdom. They set their crown upon their own head, not considering that, quote, It is he that giveth me power to get wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. If they do any Christian service, they look to their own glory. 
quote, that they may be seen of men, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, for others to admire them. The oil of vain glory feeds their lamp. Those Satan cannot destroy by indulgence, he does by vain glory. The holy life reproves those who fight against God's glory, lest ye be found even to fight against God. Acts chapter 5, verse 39. God's glory is promoted by the preaching of the word, which is his engine whereby he converts souls. Those who hinder the preaching of the word fight against God's glory, quote, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16. Those who hinder preaching stop the well of the water of life. They take away physicians who should heal sin-sick souls. Ministers are lights, and who but thieves hate light. They directly strike at God's glory, and what an account they will have to give to God when he will charge the blood of men's souls upon them. Ye have taken away the key of knowledge, ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. Luke chapter 11, verse 52. If there be either justice in heaven or fire in hell, they shall not go unpunished. I thought, pretty interesting devotional reading for the day on Friday, well, it was February 1st, but I, I really highly recommend this to you. Uh, you know, it's called Glorifying God. I was able to get this at Family Bookstore, and got it at Family Bookstore in Troy. So, uh, you know, I know that we can be bombarded with all sorts of literature and the like, but well, we're still one month into the new year. If you're looking for devotional reading or something different or a little bit of a change-up, I highly recommend it. So, and I do not get any royalties from Thomas Nelson for doing that, but just my own good heart, hopefully. Okay, let's um, proceed on. Just a little bit of a recap from last week, and then we'll continue on. We're talking about... God's glory or glorifying God in our attitudes and in our actions toward him. I pointed up the passage in James chapter 1 verse 17 that says that every good and perfect gift comes from God, from the Father of lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. It makes sense that if every good and perfect gift comes from God, that the stamp of God's glory, his fingerprint so to speak, would be on that every good and perfect gift. And we do have biblical evidence of this. We spoke briefly last week of uh, the passage in Psalm 19, <coughs> verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. So you have nature itself declaring his glory. There's also Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. I want to read that again because... I think we finished with this last week, if I remember correctly. We referred to this earlier in our class sessions. However, thank you for catching that. Uh, however, I want to show you a little bit of a different aspect of this. And again, Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, a few things I want to point out here. Um, I know that some of us weren't around for some of the earlier uh, sessions when we were talking about this passage as it's presented in the Greek Septuagint, which is among the earliest translations of the Hebrew and, and some Aramaic of the Old Testament into Greek. In the Isaiah passage here in the Septuagint, it's rendered roughly as, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and his glory filled the house. There are Christian theologians and commentators who, when taking a look at the Gospel of John, when John is saying in John chapter 12 that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, they believe Isaiah, that Isaiah or John is pointing back to this passage in Isaiah. Also keep in mind that the Septuagint was used overwhelmingly as the source for Old Testament quotes of the New Testament. So we're thinking in terms of John actually thinking in terms of the Septuagint version of what's here in Isaiah. So here's the kind of parallel I want to show you going with that mindset. With a passage that says that the glory of God filled the house in verse 1. And in verse 3, notice what the angels are saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So we have this parallel in which we see that the house or the temple is filled with the glory of Christ. And yet here are the angels ramping that up, saying that even the whole earth is now full of the glory of God. So, with these things being true, what should we expect in terms of what we look at when we look at the world around us, in terms of the glory of God? Uh, let me ask a question. I suspect one of us knows the answer to this, and if you know it in Latin, I'll be really impressed. Uh, the state motto of Michigan... I know circumspect. Thank you. Very good. Very good on all, on all levels. If you seek a pleasant peninsula, look about you. Let me ramp that up. Biblically, I believe we're being told, if you seek the glory of God, look about you. Look in the, even look in the natural world and you will see this. So, all of that to consider that not even just what we look at material, what we look at materially in this world, that we also have the understanding that everything we encounter—time, space, energy, matter—is all the creation of God and bears His glory. I want to talk about that even briefly in terms of time. Uh, let's take a look. Well, I'm not even going to ask this to turn. We know the first verse of the very, well, the very first verse of the first chapter of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he created these things. Now, I believe the scripture shows that when God creates all these things, he creates not only the universe, he creates time itself. Time, space, energy, matter. I want to take a look at Jude chapter 1. Yes, and that's 
the result of having seen things on computer searches because typically it's called June 25. But it's, sorry, but uh, I'm going with chapter verse on everything. So it's Jude chapter 1, the only chapter in Jude. Verse 25, part of the doxology or, or blessing where Jude writes, let me back up to verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Let me just stop right there. Sounds like Jude wants to really close off his uh, letter with um, praise and glory to God. Just a little sidelight as we're doing this. But through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. So you have a scriptural indication that you actually can have a concept of something, in a sense, before time, before all ages. Therefore, when you're taking a look at what God creates in Genesis 1-1, he's creating time, space, energy, matter. All these things bear his glory. All these things bear the fingerprint of his creation. And I think that will be important as we, we see this. So that even as, for example, let me go with time first, then we'll talk about, in a sense, space. With time bearing the image or not the image, sorry, uh, bearing the fingerprint of God's glory, I believe you can make the case that history itself, as it unfolds, is unfolding by the hand of God for his ultimate glory and purposes. That as the passage of time goes by, you don't see history going willy-nilly, and here's God in heaven going, what kind of Frankenstein have I created? Things gone amok, it's gone wild on me. Uh, time in its passage has not gone rogue on God. He is its sovereign, and it was created for his purposes and for his glory. Let me go back now to space in a sense. Uh, Christian theologians have held to the idea that there have been two types of revelation that God has given us. One of them is considered general, and we'll take a look at the passage in Romans in just a moment. General, which means it's the book of nature, so to speak. What God reveals in the universe, the world around us. And there's also special revelation, which is what we would consider the written word of God, the Bible. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And this is the basis we're looking at in terms of this understanding of general revelation. Yeah, it's Roman chap Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Actually, we are going to revisit this passage a little bit later in our class session today because I need to bring in another aspect of this. That's why when I'm dealing with these passages, you'll hear me repeat some of the passages. That's because I've got one aspect I want to deal with in one place, a different aspect at another point. But let's read on from verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, 
his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. So, a passage such as this is a basis for understanding that what God has revealed in nature is sufficient revelation to humanity that he exists. Now, I know that there are some who will try to make the case that you can read the gospel and the stars, so to speak, uh, the, the different constellations. <coughs> Let me be charitable. Uh, I don't think you can. <laughs> uh, for even the simplest reasons that constellations, for example, as, they're, uh, as they've been discussed over the centuries and millennia in one part of the world, those same stars are seen in different configurations in other parts of the world. So that you can have a constellation that, let's say, with the folks who lived in Europe and Asia, they said, oh, that is a certain goddess. In China, they said, you know, that looks like an ox cart. So it's like, okay, if you can't even have, if you see these points of light and you're literally playing connect the dots on a celestial level, with the stars, and you come up with com two completely different understandings of what these constellations would be, obviously they're not clear enough to give a precise message that this constellation means something, other than the fact that the stars are out there. But that's what is being meant by the idea that general revelation is nature is sufficient to reflect the glory of God that is there. Dan, did you have a question or a comment? I don't believe I've ever connected any of the star dots and they ever look like anything they described it to be. They always build a, a picture larger than what those dots. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 so I don't think any of them has ever looked like anything they described. So they, they just describe something to a set of stars. That... I mean, for example, the one that you might be more familiar with, just because it's actually out in the, uh, the night sky nowadays, is the uh, constellation Orion. And if you see it, it's, let's see if I can do this, I know I can draw on that. It's two dots, then like three dots, and then below it, two dots. And the reason it kind of stands out is because from our perspective on Earth, they look relatively the same in terms of brilliance. Now, that is supposed to be Orion the Hunter. And of course, those two dots on top are Orion pulling back his bow and the ones on the bottom are his legs. And the three that are really kind of close together are supposed to be Orion's belt. I saw it, I thought it was a, an hourglass. I mean, that, that's kind of what it looks like to me. I mean, use your imagination. Jeff? There's a, another aspect of it, though, that might be contributing, and that's light pollution. Without all the light that we have today, there's a whole lot more stars visible. That's a good point. That is a good point. There's three actually hanging down off the belt that are supposed to represent his knife. Very good, thank you. I was not aware of that. Good, thank you. Stay in the class. I'll need you. For, I'll need you for, for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All the points I do for the year. <laughs> thank you. No, I, we learn so much from each other. Thank you. But again, you have this general revelation that points out the existence of God, but you really can't drill down much more than beyond that. However, what Paul says, I believe, is crucial that when he says that these things are there so that men, people, are without excuse. So if you have somebody who says, well, 
I don't believe there's a God. Like, really, you can see the intricacy of the world around you and what has happened. And please understand, I'm not trying to go off on some rabbit trail here and like beat up on people who aren't open believers because <coughs> what we really do need to keep in mind, and I know it can be frustrating for us sometimes as Christians, is that what is now plain to us screamingly, openly, like bright neon light plain to us about who Jesus Christ is, what he's done for us, these things are veiled from those who are not believers and that they're held captive to Satan. Uh, it would be kind of like, I don't know how many of, most of us can remember uh, what happened back in 1979 with the Iranian hostage crisis and the pictures that were being beamed back from the embassy in Tehran of these people who were being blindfolded and held captive by this group of students, as they were, by this group of people from Iran, let's just keep it general. And you're seeing these, and if you were to sit back and watching the news going, what's a big deal? Why don't they just leave? Why couldn't they? They were being held captive. They're blindfolded. They couldn't even see where they're going. And I, I believe in a lot of cases they were being uh, either handcuffed or somehow restrained so that uh, even if somehow they broke loose in their captors, they wouldn't even be able to see where they're going and have hands free enough to remove the blindfold from their own eyes. That's what we're dealing with, with people who are not believers yet. And yet there's still this balance that we're given in Scripture that says that even for those people who have the veil kept from, or veil over them to keep them from understanding the gospel at this time, that still the light of what they can see in the physical world is enough information to say, there's a God, I need to pursue something further. I, I need to get more information. There's no excuse for ignorance that a divinity exists. And again, you can't get a whole lot more information than that, but the fact that God proves he exists should be sufficient to start the search for who he is. So try to keep all that in balance. So let's um, point up a few more things, and I'll open up for questions and comments. I just want to point out that in the past, there's been a recognition the general revelation, the, the book of nature, so to speak, must be seen and interpreted through the lens of the glory of God. The point I've been making throughout this class has been that scripture should be read through the lens of the glory of God. The special revelation should be. The general revelation needs to be as well. What I'd like to do, I'm just going to quote, or I'm just going to leave Calvin's quote up there as it is. In uh, Calvin's Institutes, there are several places where he refers to the world as we see it is the glorious theater in which God's workings are done and his glory can be seen in the way that actions and, and nature unfolds. There is a uh, part of a, actually it's part of, called I think it's a novel by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And please understand I'm not normally Elizabeth Barrett Browning reader, but I'm not much of a poetry reader as such. Either I'm a barbarian or just don't go there, I don't know. Um, could be both. Um, however, I came across this quote from within one of her writings, and I thought it was really insightful. She writes this in 1856. Let me fire up the Kindle here. 
And this is from a book she did in 1856 called Aurora Lee. It's from the seventh book within uh, Aurora Lee. And she writes, truth so far in my book, the truth which draws through all things upward, that a twofold world must go to a perfect cosmos, natural things and spiritual. Who separates those? Who separates those two? In art, in morals, or the social drift? Tears up the bond of nature and brings death, paints futile pictures, writes unreal verse, leads vulgar days, deals ignorantly with men. But man, the twofold creature, apprehends the twofold manner, in and outwardly, and nothing in the world comes single to him. Let me stop right here. What I believe she's saying is that there's when you see things in the world, you just don't see them from a material aspect. That there's a natural and a spiritual aspect to everything you're encountering. And she continues, a mirror itself, or a mere thing itself, a cup, a column, a candlestick, all patterns of what shall be in the mount or, or in heaven. The whole temporal show related royally and built up to a turn or eternal significance through the open arms of God. There's nothing great nor small, has said a poet of our day, whose voice will ring beyond the curfew of eve or evening and not be thrown out by the matin's bell or in the morning. And truly, I reiterate, nothing's small. No lily-muffed hum of a summer bee but finds some coupling with the spinning stars. No pebble at your foot but proves a sphere. No chaffinch or finch, but implies the cherubim, and glancing on my own thin vein wrist, and such a little tremor of blood, the whole strong clamor of a vehement soul, doth <laughs> itself utter distinct. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush of fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces, unaware, more and more, from the first similitude." Okay. 1850s American, American? Uh, 1850s Barrett Browning. And where I'm going with that is that there's a recognition on her part that she said, earth is crammed with heaven. Remember what the angels are saying before God and Isaiah? The whole earth is full of your glory. If you seek the glory of God, look about you. You will see it. And where you see the lack of glory, I believe you see the hand of man, sinful man, who is somehow despoiling that glory. Even on a day like yesterday, for example, with the way the snow is falling, very beautiful. You want to see slush? That's men and women driving through it with their cars and snowblowers and all that. My point is, and I'm not saying snowblowers are evil, but what I'm going with that is <laughs> if they are. But where human, human things will interfere with the glory of God, if somebody says, well, that's ugly, it's like it didn't appear ugly naturally. Ug ugliness came in because human beings somehow despoiled it. But I, I just wanted to bring up to you that even in terms of this sense of natural revelation, of knowing that there is a God who's out there simply by looking at the universe. That there are others in the past who, in their theological literature, in their poetic literature, 
recognize that you can't just view the world of nature as simply by itself. That nature and spirit have to be seen together. That the glory of God has to be seen in these things. Otherwise, you're looking at them in a completely incorrect way. In the same way that if you're reading the Bible and somehow you read yourself into it, you know, I, I think we talked about this in the first few sessions, uh, where you take the Winnie, Winnie the Pooh approach, this is all about me. <laughs> it's not. It's all about Christ. You matter, but you're not the point. <laughs> same kind of thing when it comes to what you see in nature, is that there's this evidence for the glory of God that's there that just to see it as nature only takes away from what's really out there. It's nature with God's hand behind it. I've spoken for a long time. Any questions or comments? Yes, Rose. Uh, when I was homeschooling my boys, we got invited to uh, Michigan, the University of Michigan, and they have an electron microscope, mm -hmm. and we can't see with the naked eye, but when you look in that microscope, I mean, there's depth to looking at the wing of a fly and then looking at the cell that's in that fly. And I mean, you can keep going and going and going and going and still not discover it. I mean, God created that simple fly, and we just see him as a pest. But when you look at him through an electron microscope, it was fascinating. I mean, that, that just convinced me even more, you know, that uh, God didn't leave anything no, that's, I, I'm glad you brought that up because as time goes by, there, there have been some who tried to make the case, well, as, as we mature as a society, our need for the God myth goes away. Mm -hmm. However, as time has gone by, our ability to peer into nature on the large scale level and the small scale level has increased. I mean, you brought up the electron microscope, and of course there were optical microscopes before that for at least a century or two. You think of Galileo, who takes the idea of a telescope. He didn't invent the telescope, but what he did was to create one and use it for a purpose that no one had apparently used it for before. The, the Dutch invented the telescope as a way of seeing, oh, you know that fleet of ships that's coming across the ocean that's like trying to do bad things to us? We now have, it's like our early warning radar of the time so that you can look out in the sea and go, ah, those ships we wouldn't have seen for a few hours, they're out there, we're ready for them. Anyway, it was used more as a military type thing. Galileo took the idea and said, hmm, why don't you take a look at what's out there in the heavens? And he saw some things no human ever saw before that. Uh, he looked up at the night sky uh, and looked up at the planet Jupiter. And he saw moons that were going around it. It's, it. You can see in the field glasses if you even have those. You don't even need a big telescope. Just to look up and you see this white disk and you see these dots that like line up straight across. And you go, wow, I couldn't have really seen those with the naked eye. I, I know there's some people who claim that they were able to in the past and that I'm not sure about. I don't know. But Galileo's the first one for sure who's looking at these things and where I'm going with this is that as our ability to peer into nature on the macro level and the micro level increases, the glory we see behind it doesn't diminish, it increases. Our ability to drill down to these things doesn't take away God's glory. We see it ever, ever more profoundly. It's ever more manifest. Yes, Jim. 
Well, to put it in perspective, if you uh, drilling down, seeing all those layers, it's been said that possibly we're just a speck floating around in somebody's body, uh, and that somebody else could, could drill down and look at us. That's an interesting <laughs> thought, yes. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to work out the theology of that one. <laughs> no, that's a good point. Any other comments or questions before we move on? Yes, Dan. When you were just making some comments about the snow and the slush and everything, we determined that would be ugly or bad. But uh, that's only in our eyes and not God's eyes. Just like the uh, mud that the ark was about to fall into. Uh, Uzo was dirtier than the mud. That's a good point. And mud is not ugly or anything wrong as far as God. Mud's just doing what mud does. And so man is sinful. And, and yet he uses whatever we have in this earth that even we call ugly. It's not necessarily ugly to him, but to his purpose, to his glory. I, I like that because uh, the mud was doing what it was supposed to be doing. Uh, Uzzah was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing, and thus sinned and ended up getting killed for it. Uh, yes? Yes, speaking of just looking at the human body as part of God's creation, um, one of my favorite people, a guy named John Patrick. Have you ever heard of John Patrick? I haven't. He's, uh, he's a Christian philosopher from England originally, and he's now um, mostly talks to people, but he, he, he's... He's a Christian apologetist, sort of, and, but he, he mostly deals in asking questions. And, and so one of his questions that he, I, I've heard him speak a few times at Focus on the Family and places, he, uh, he got in front of this class and, and he wrote on the chalkboard, this message wrote itself. Mm -hmm. and, and, and everybody said, well, that's ridiculous. The message can't write itself. Uh, everybody, and he said, you know, everybody agrees this message didn't write itself. And then he crossed out the word message and he wrote in DNA. And if you think about it, that's, that's what evolutionists would say, well, this message, this DNA somehow wrote itself and somehow came up with the whole concept of what it would take to create a, a, a mammal of any kind, let alone a human being. So, uh, yeah, that's, that was a really telling moment of, of you know, looking at what what we are, looking at what DNA is, and just, just that alone is, you know, millions of little amino acids all put together in just exactly the right alignment to give us a, a, an identity that's different from everybody else. That's, that's a very, uh, I'm trying to think of the right term for it. Graphic. Uh, graphic, thank you. Very graphic point. Uh, I've heard recently that somebody claimed they were actually able to now manipulate some DNA to actually store MP3 files for songs. No, for, seriously. Um, it's like, okay, you know, so if you're missing your iPod, just run your little thing over your eye. The more I'm going with this is even that required human intervention to take a library, and I don't even know the amount of what the equivalent data would be of a DNA string, uh, just in terms of like. Megabytes, gigabytes, yeah. possibly even terabytes. I mean, we're talking massive amounts of data that are stored in DNA. And to say that it wrote itself, and that somebody who's coming from an evolutionary background, and again, just showing the whole contrast, because for those of us who are believers, while we don't say this with pride, we can say with thankfulness that God has lifted the veil 
from our eyes to be able to see these things. And that for someone who's not had that veil lifted yet, they're confronted with what Dr. Henderson just mentioned, and they have to come up with the most ridiculous ideas to try to defend how the message, how the DNA wrote itself. And keep in mind, for no other area of life would they go to that kind of distance or, or that, that kind of, um, of a problem for themselves saying, oh yeah, see this massive thing that's full of maybe gigabytes or terabytes worth of information? It constructed itself. <laughs> like, no, we know better. But it just goes to show that when you have even an example like that with DNA, and again, with Watson and Crick's discovery of DNA back in the 1950s, it just goes to show this didn't take away from the glory of God. It made it exponentially greater to see exactly the stuff, the information that's built into us. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, yes, Dan. Isn't that much, uh, not much different than uh, blind people who are trying to justify their existence through blindness? Isn't it rightfully that they would be doing stuff like that? Exactly. Since they can't really see, they try to justify in their darkness what exactly how things happen. Why we pity them rather than attack them? Yeah. And, I, and again, one thing I think it would be useful for many of us to do, how do I put it, not to pull back on giving people the gospel and explaining to them and, and presenting very cogent arguments such as the DNA thing, the, the idea of the DNA writing itself. Those are valid arguments, but also that the veil would be lifted from their eyes. Because I don't know how many of us came to faith later in life. I mean, I, for example, I'll use Jeff Jezerski as a safe example. He says, well, I, I, became a, I was a Christian about as far back as he knew. I mean, I've heard him say, it's like, I wasn't, I distinctly remember the time I became a Christian. And while it's a little hard for me to say exactly when it happened, I can tell you when I entered into the cloud, so to speak, and when I came out of it. And I was 28 years old at the time. And I know what it's like to look back at these arguments and go, yeah, those silly Christians, they think God did this. I, I have enough of a memory, so I'm asking that for those of you who do have that memory, sympathetic might not be the right word, but try to be empathetic to the fact that we're dealing with people who are literally spiritually blind. Yeah, Jeff? Uh, I had a similar experience in my life. And I think that uh, for me the key is that uh, there are too many people who uh, call themselves Christians, and in well-meaning, who attempt to lift that veil, and, and we can't. Right. We, we can only <clears throat> present, and God's got to do the lifting of that veil. He knows whose heart's ready for it. No? I, I agree. Uh, I mean, I believe these things do happen with the words that God allows us to share with others. The word, of course, scripture. Uh, our prayers, that these are all means that God will use to to answer our prayers and lift the veil, but to engineer this on our own. I think we, how do I put it, for many Christians, I think Jesus is not so much the divine Son of God, Son of Man, who died for our sins and rose for justification. He is the result of a good argument. <laughs> and I think we need to be really careful in our apologetics, our defense of the faith, to make sure that Jesus just isn't the answer to a puzzle 
that he's seen as who he is in all of his glory. Can I see the other hand? Yeah, I'm sorry, you got Jeff, sure. I to a lot of frustration if you don't realize that. Yeah, and I explained this one time. I was talking to a class I was teaching at uh, Christian Leadership Academy. I was, I was teaching as a substitute for a quarter. And I made a comment about that this was the equivalent of trying to teach a pig to whistle. And one of the kids, I don't know if he was just trying to make trouble for me or not, just, are you calling us pigs? No, no, no. no. But I mean, just that, that level of frustration that, I mean, you can put your energies into something and you aren't going to be able to gin it up. You aren't going to be able to make it happen. Uh, I did see another hand or some comments. Rose? Um, I'm not trying to force you. I just, I, yeah. I just, uh, actually, uh, when I became a Christian, I was living in Denver, Colorado, and you see the mountains and the glorious mountains, and I used to go there every weekend, but it didn't affect me as far as the glory of God. And then I became a Christian because I thought, if this is all there is, you know, what's the point of going on? Right. And somebody that I worked with introduced me to the Lord, and as soon as I accepted Christ as my Savior, I thought, why doesn't everybody see this? It's all so clear. I mean, it's, you know, what's wrong with people? And I preached to my sister. You thought I'd been a Christian 20 years. I'm telling her about God and Jesus. And, the, you know, I was only two weeks into the, you know, being a Christian. But it just made so much sense then. And then when I went back to the mountains, I could sense the glory of God. Because I saw this fantastic. Mountains. I mean, it's just gorgeous. I, 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 we've been there uh, in Colorado, and it, yes, they are. They're, and just even being able to be, I think it was at Estes Park, but also at uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, and yeah. seeing this mountain just thing. It seems what, unreal. What kind, of, what kind of forces did God put into motion to make this thing yeah. and put this thing exactly where it's at? But yeah, like, and, and the interesting thing is that you were taking a look at the very same mountains before and after, yeah. and that before, it's like, I'm sorry, I'm not saying you say, oh, but I'm saying mountains, and then after it's like, wow, the glory of God, you can see it. Yeah, and it takes when your breath away. I, I, what I've likened this to in my own experience, I don't know if this has been yours, but it, it, try to imagine going through life, maybe I shouldn't ask, I don't know if one of you were blinded in one eye or not, or have been, but if you go through life like this, all your life, you see through one eye. You're seeing everything. You're seeing what's there. However, when you have that second eye turn on, you now have depth and perspective. You're, you're seeing the same things, but you're seeing them with a completely, literally different perspective than you would have if you're only seeing through one eye. So when you're seeing through the eye of nature and the eye of the spirit, it gives you a dimension that those who are looking at the very same phenomenon you're looking at don't literally have the same perspective you do. Let's continue on. Okay, what are these? Um, are these the things that are along the road on River Rouge on I-75? No, these are not oil tankers. This is my crude graphic attempt at having a bucket or a little container. And what I wanted to ask us, as we think through the idea of every good and perfect gift coming from God, that if we had a container for this I should actually brought in containers as opposed to this. Anyway, my attempt to get graphics done here in PowerPoint. Um, I think that sometimes, we might not want to admit it, but there are times that we think that there are some things 
that we've done that are good, that are really not worthy of glorifying God for them. Like, you know, we did this. Or let's say you, you planted a garden, and you did the weeding and the watering and all the stuff you're supposed to do for a garden. And whatever you planted actually came up, and you had a pretty good yield. But you were out there every day, and you were making this thing work, and you say, you know what? I made this garden. Me. I did the good things behind it. Okay, now I am seeing these smiling chuckles behind a few of your faces going, yeah, right. But here's where I'm going with this. What, there are some things, I think, in life that we think that, you know, we did it. We really don't have to give God the glory for it. Uh, we might think in terms of our intelligence. Like maybe you scored big on an IQ test and maybe you were able to parlay that into a job that allows you to use your intelligence and, and the like for, for some profession. And you say, you know, hey, I'm the one who went to school. I'm the one who went through elementary or kindergarten, elementary, high school, college, uh, graduate work, PhD work, whatever. It's like, I did that. And where I'm trying to go with that is, do we, does scripture allow for any place in which you have a good gift that did not come from the hand of God? Absolutely. How is it that we can have a crown of gold that we can throw to the feet of God at the, in the end time? I mean, we accomplished... You know, we, we accomplish something because we get a gold crown. We, we do. So, but we don't, we don't keep that for ourselves. We give that back to God by glorifying Him. Exactly. Exactly. That even, even though God is condescending enough to give us rewards for the things that we do for Him, and I think the picture in Revelation that you pointed out, Fran, is just absolutely wonderful. This idea of those who take their crowns and go, you know, these really, ultimately, they aren't ours. And I, I think Revelation does that. And there's, there's been one or two songs we've sung here within recent years. Uh, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. What a wonderful recognition that even the things that God rewards us for are things that ultimately come from his hand. And that's why I was trying to, with this graphic, actually maybe force us to think in terms of, do we really think that there's something in our lives that we did that's independent of the glory of God, that he doesn't need to be glorified for? Obviously the answer is no, but I believe as we think that through, we actually now come through and have some more implications to what that means. Since all good things reflect God's glory, we must read the Bible in such a way that we look for the glory of God in all of his good gifts to us. And in response, we are instructed to recognize God's glory in our attitudes and our actions. That's what we're doing in time. We're doing okay. There's no, there's no neutral ground in this matter. Now let me stop myself here for a moment. Uh, there was a clip from a movie that Jimmy Stewart was in, in which he portrays somebody who's in the old American West, like 19th century. It's like, okay, fine, you're probably thinking, okay, that's probably like 60 films, like start throwing it down. Uh, and he's a widower 
and his wife is a devout believer in Christ, but she ends up dying in the course of the movie. And, he, and she has, in a sense, told him as one of her dying wishes, you have to say grace before every meal. You, you've got to basically give God the glory. And the clip I heard was Jimmy Stewart's portrayal of this character saying, Lord, we, we thank you for this food, but you know, we did it with the work of our hands and the sweat of our brow, and we're the ones who produce this, so you know, thank you for it. Amen. And, and I think that sometimes we actually maybe have that impression. But not only, but I, I want us to think in terms not only of every good gift, but also even the smallest of things, however common, however small it might seem to us, to be able to give God glory for it. There's a command to recognize the glory of God in even the mundane things of this life. And I want us to take a look at Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, as a principle behind this. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. This is talking about the rebuilding of the temple. But I think there's a principle here that, especially in our time and place, and it's been my observation, I think, within American evangelicalism, this is the case as well. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. I'll tell you, let me go back to verse 8 just for a little bit of context. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Let me just stop with that. Who despises the day of small things? I think sometimes, in our hearts and minds, we do. Think about the things that we'll offer praises for in church. And I'm not saying that the things that we're offering praises for, we shouldn't be. Um, you know, healings. Um, finding a job, things of that sort. But think about some things that, if you were to hear this, what would you think if somebody put an appraiser question and said, I haven't had a chocolate malt in five years, and I forgot how good chocolate malts can taste. I want to praise God for the gift of chocolate malts. Now, you might be thinking, going, what? This is something we offer praise for? I would ask, why not? Why not? You know, we're going to have a flood of these things happen in church now. Um, <laughs> where I'm going with this is that we tend to think in terms of the large, the macro, the things that are like the earth-shaking things that happen in our lives, the game changers. But what about the things, the mundane things that happen in our lives every single day? The gift of being able to perhaps go to work. The gift of getting up without pain after maybe a surgery or something of that sort. Uh, I know that for myself, last year I had a rather severe case of tendonitis in one leg. And I was hobbling around as well as I could. But just walking as fast as I typically do, I wasn't able to do. And starting around August and September, it was, it was healing up. And by the time September rolls around, I'm able to cruise around as fast as I used to. It's like, thank you, Lord, that pain is gone. Thank you that that's healed up. Or when your kid comes home and shows a paper that has an A on it because of something they did, the way they studied. 
isn't that worthy of praising God for it? That every, every good and perfect gift comes from him. And I will make the point that I don't believe there's anything too small that is a good gift of God that is worthy of praising him for it. Because otherwise, we'd be, like, remember those poorly, not oh, poorly, but those uh, graphics, the buckets that I had, in a sense would be saying, no, it's not worthy of really giving God the glory for it because it's too small. I mean, especially in evangelical culture. Think about our testimonies. When you hear about somebody who gives testimony to God, and they'll say, I was, I was a gang member, I was a member of a death metal band, I was sucking down five gallons of Jack Daniels a, a day. I had 15 women. I was constantly, I mean, you could, you, you've heard these testimonies. And I'm not saying that God doesn't work in the, in the lives of people for whom this has been the case. But what happens when you have somebody who says, yeah, I was kind of a shy geek. I, all those people that my friends had, the girls, and I really wish I was one of them, and I wish I could have had their lives, but I was too shy to pursue it. And I still needed Christ. Outwardly, I looked pretty good. What kind of testimony is that? Do you think that's going to sell? In the, in the, I mean, if you go to Promise Keepers or some, I don't know if they still do Promise Keepers, but you know, some Christian event, somebody comes up and says, I was a geek who seemed to be pretty well behaved, and I needed Christ, and I came to Christ. <laughs> think that's going to sell in the high-octane mar high market of Christian um, uh, testimonies? Probably not. You might not get put onto YouTube or GodTube or anything else like that, mm -hmm. but does someone else need Christ just as much if they're a quiet, shy geek as much as the guy from the death metal band who's knocking up all these girls and drinking like five gallons of Jack a week or a day? Well, let's, let's make this intense. <laughs> but my point is, even the smallest of things that happen for, for the glory of God are worthy of his praise. And to make sure that we aren't thinking in terms of despising the day of small things. We live in the day of small things, typically. I mean, think, just a moment, Rose. Just think, how many moments do you have that are epic game changers in your life? They aren't. You, you, you probably maybe list off maybe 10, 20 of them in your life. You live, we live in the mundane. Those 10,000 moments of quietness when we're by ourselves, when... There are these slow changes that happen. And, you know, God does work in the big things, but he works in the small, too. Rosalind and Jeff. When you said the small things, there are times when I go grocery shopping, and I am really beat, and I thought, oh, Lord, it would be so nice to have a parking spot close to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And how many times he has done that. And I've given him praise for it. You know, I thought, well, this is so good a parking spot. But I thought, no. He did this for me because I was just too tired to walk from my car to the to the store. And it's a small thing, but to me it was huge. My in-laws do that. I don't think I'm revealing any family secrets. Uh, you know, they'll they'll say, you know, well, may we please get a parking spot? And I'll be darned if it doesn't happen. Uh, every single time. Every single time. Yeah, yeah, we're in Franken. And they always give glory to God. We were in Franken yeah. last um, last Sunday and. They have the uh, snow fest going there, so Frankenmuth was particularly crowded, especially where we wanted to go for dinner. And we're thinking, oh, good heavens, this, this is like landlocked, people-locked, car-locked, parking lots, just weren't going to move. We got in, and uh, sure enough, 
there's the spot. <laughs> so uh, we're very thankful for that, it's even in the smallest things. Jeff? Uh, I, I know that it's probably a good idea to do journaling, especially around prayers and answers to prayer. And one of these days, I'm going to start doing that. Um, but uh, I wonder sometimes, because I'll experience something that seems so insignificant, such as a cardinal showing up in the tree, or uh, a chickadee just outside my window. And suddenly I hear it, where it's been there all, all along, but now I hear it, and I appreciate it. And how many of those things are happening to us Constantly all day long. Exactly. Exactly. Diane? Time for a plug for the book, A Thousand Gifts by Ann Voskamp. Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Making a list of a thousand things that you're thankful for. Like three things every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Ann Voskamp has been, I think, instrumental. If you're reading her, her style's a little bit unconventional, let's put it that way. It's but like, there's it's gold. Like to share and talk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but there's gold. But there's, there's gold in what she says. And the idea that somebody would think, can I actually write down a thousand things I'm grateful for? Yeah, they're there. Dan, and then we're going to have to close up, I think. I, I agree. Everything that we have, it, you know, it's all the glory of God. We get things and everything for only, only thing that comes to my mind is um, when you go to someone's house for a really nice dinner and they work really hard on the dinner, and, and afterwards they say, wow, your silverware was really shiny. <laughs> and of course you give thanks for the shiny silverware, but when someone works so hard, uh, it's nice to, you know, to give thanks. So I mean, some of the, the prayer requests or the thankfulness that we give, instead of being on the, the little things, which are really important, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we just forget some of the major things, that, uh, whether we're taking it for granted or, or whatever. And we, we look at the smaller less significant things. Everything is significant. Right. But, uh, you know, expand our minds to something bigger than shiny silverware, too. Yeah. Beyond, beyond what Shakespeare calls beyond mere ornament. Uh, Sharon. I just, I, I just want to respond to that in that in, in thanking God for the small things, like the cardinal on the tree, the finch on a sunflower, um, the, you know, a, a cool morning in August. Uh, in practicing those little things, you begin to see the big things and the glory they are. Because you begin to see how the earth is crammed with God's glory. It's in practicing seeing those little things, because we, we don't. We don't see the mundane as being God's glory, as being his beauty gifted to us, shared with us. Draw, he draws us in, but he asks us to have eyes to see. And to have eyes to see, we have to practice. And that's why I love this book by Ann Voskamp, because it starts with three things every day. She started with soap bubbles, seeing a rainbow in soap bubbles. Mm -hmm. And she started with Monday, because she's a mom of six kids. And so she started looking for God in the pots and pans and in the oatmeal in the morning. And it began to grow, and she began to see those huge things through the small things that she was not insignificant to God, and neither was the oatmeal she prepared for six little holes. 
So I just want to give a plug for the small things. I thank you, Jim. <laughs> The, the parking comment I had, the way I heard was the lady was desperately looking for a parking spot at Christmas time in the mall, and, and she just wished one would open, and wouldn't you know it, she prayed that a parking spot would open, and one opened right in front of her, and uh, she said, never mind, Lori, <laughs> Jim, that summarizes in one absolute some things I was trying to say this entire session. Thank you, God bless you, and um, have a good Sunday. And remember, if you are seeking the glory of God, look about you. That is all for this session. The PowerPoints which I used for this class will be posted on both the Restoring the Core website as well as the School of the Solitary Place blog. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. Our original blog is still active. It can be found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time for the Lens of Glory.